0: Welcome to Ask Peggy about your finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a Certified Financial Planner Practitioner, and this week's show is the best of the Ask Peggy questions. So you're going to listen to questions that people have asked me. I provide answers. Remember, they're educational, so you need to ask your Certified Financial Planner Practitioner if they would work for you, and you can submit questions to my Facebook page, Ask Peggy. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And this is the part of the show where I answer people's questions. If you'd like to send a question, you can um, submit it on my Facebook page, which is Ask Peggy. Or you can also submit it on my website, which is peggydoviak.com, P-E-G-G-Y-D-O-V-I-A-K.com. Pretty soon, there's going to be an easier way. There's even going to be an Ask Peggy website, but we don't quite have that set up yet. So right now, the two best ways to contact me are either through the Ask Peggy Facebook page or the Peggydoviak.com website. And I have a great question that came in actually from someone who's a writer, but it works for everyone because the basic rules are the same. The question is... Can a writer still take a home office deduction even though the tax rules around it have changed? And it's a really, really good question because what I want to broaden it out to is the difference between having a business that you run out of your home and having a home office where you actually do work for another job. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was passed last December got rid of the miscellaneous deduction section of your tax return. So all of the itemized miscellaneous deductions are gone. That includes the home office deduction. So if you have been taking a home office deduction on your taxes on the itemized section, second page of the tax return towards the bottom of the page, you can't do that anymore. You know, it used to be you could only take a home office deduction if that home office was being held for the convenience of your employer. So if you had work that you did there regularly if you were, um, if you had a specific task you did in your home office that you couldn't do anywhere else, then it counted. So you would go to work, you'd have your office at work, you work for somebody else, and then you were able to take the home office deduction off your taxes. That's gone, and so you need to be very careful doing your taxes this year. Now those are your 2018 taxes not the ones that are actually due here in about another month these are the ones that are due next April because there are a lot of deductions that you may have been able to take that are gone that the home office deduction is one of them however the person who actually asked me this question was a writer and writers work for themselves and the writer has the ability to set up a business that is their own now if you work for yourself and you work out of your home, but you actually have your own business, then the home office becomes a business expense that comes off of your business tax return. It isn't something that actually is an itemized deduction on your personal tax return. So if you're owning any kind of your own business where you calculate all of your income that comes in and then you calculate all of the expenses that go out and then anything that's left over is either what you're earning or maybe in part of the expenses that are coming out, you're actually paying yourself a salary. But then you have that extra money left over If you do your taxes like that, and you have your own business, then your home office is a business expense, not a personal expense, and it is possible to take it on, take it off of your taxes. Now, I am, no one has to take my advice, but my recommendation for this year is you might seriously want to talk to a CPA if your taxes are anything at all resembling anything that's complicated because the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act has made huge changes in what can be deducted it's changed what um, what kind of medical expenses or actually what percentage of your medical bills have to be before you can deduct them. It used to be before two or three years ago that if your medical bills were 7.5% of your adjusted gross income or more, you could deduct the amount that was more than 7.5%. Then here a couple of years ago, they raised it to 10%. Well, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act has now dropped it back to 7.5%. They've actually changed the percentage of charitable donations you can make from 50% of your income to 60% of your income. I know that sounds like a lot of money. There's some weird situations where that actually does impact people. Then all of the um, miscellaneous itemized deductions are gone You do have a larger standard deduction, but you no longer have personal exemptions. So my opinion is this is just enough to make your head spin backwards, and it's not even October yet. So I'm thinking that for most people, talking to a CPA, getting some tax assistance for 2018 is going to help a lot. Because even though the writer who asked me the question can probably deduct that home office cost, that tax return has to be done in a very specific way or they can't. And I know that people do their taxes wrong all the time. They're not cheating. They just don't do them correctly. And if you don't do your taxes correctly, you may find that some deductions that you would be able to take if you're a small business owner are gone when you actually would have expected to have been able to have them, um, and then suddenly the place that you take them off on on your tax return is just missing. So I'm thinking this is a good year to call in that special team from the last section and get a little bit of assistance. So, yes, you can possibly take your home office deduction. There are two ways of doing it. One is the simplified method, which does not have to be recaptured when you sell your house, and the other is percentage of home method. And again, probably a better question for a CPA than for me to try to answer on the air today. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. This is my favorite part of the show, but I really want you guys to reach out on social media to the Ask Peggy page, or if you want to ask a question in a different format, you could go to peggydoviak.com, my website, and there's a place that you can submit questions there as well. So I would love to hear from you, so peggydoviak.com or Ask Peggy on Facebook. Today's question is, Peggy, I hear people talk about how my retirement spending is going to change over what I'm spending today, but I'm not sure what to do with it. And so what I would like to offer are some ideas that you might think about that you might not have thought about. And I want to start out by telling you about a pet peeve that I have. I really hate rules of thumb. I know that to a certain extent, rules of thumb are there because they tend to be accurate, but I think they can get you in a world of hurt. And honestly, I'm not sure where some rules of thumb come from because I don't see it. I don't understand it. The rule of thumb that I'm going to address today is you will spend 80% of your current income in retirement. I bet you've heard that one, right? So whatever you spend today, you're going to spend about 80% of that in retirement. I just don't think that's right. I think what you spend in retirement is a complete function of what you choose to spend in retirement. Let me explain. So if you've got a mortgage now and you are you know, paying off maybe some student loan debt, Then it's very possible that when you retire, if your mortgage is paid off, the student loans are paid off, please let the student loans be paid off when you're in retirement, that you might be spending a little bit less, you know, and because mortgages can be a chunk of people's income each month, the lack of the mortgage sure might make you spend less money. But what happens if you're fairly successful and you decide you'd like to buy a vacation house? Well, you know, maybe you pay cash for it, but you probably put a mortgage on it. And so now, just about the time your regular house is paid off, you've got a mortgage on a beach house or a mountain house. And yes, you can sell that property, probably, if things got really south on you. But most people don't buy vacation homes with the idea of selling them when they enter retirement. So now suddenly, you've got as much mortgage as you had before. If you decide to keep your current home, maybe you put in a pool or the landscaping. I've seen a number of people who suddenly have all this time and they get all these ideas and they watch HGTV. That's not a plug. It's just a reference. And they decide they're going to go in and put an outdoor barbecue and waterfall and pool in. And suddenly they throw that year's budget completely off. So sometimes we spend more money in the beginning of retirement. Now, generally, that kind of does even out over time. But then once you're no longer spending money on fun things, you've got to figure out how you're going to pay for your medical stuff. Now, Medicare is good. The Medicare supplements are good. If you've got a secondary policy from your employer to serve as a supplement, that's good. But the medical costs certainly can be an issue as you age. More than that, long-term care costs begin to come into play. How are you going to pay for the last three years of your life? You know, maybe you sell your house and you use that as part of the income, but there's a cost there. And if you've got a spouse who doesn't necessarily need to go into a facility, selling the house may be an issue. Sometimes a mortgage against the house paid by your kids allows the kids to retain the asset where a reverse mortgage does not. And that's very complicated, probably an additional topic for another day. But in a reverse mortgage, that asset is likely no longer your children's when you die. So if there's a traditional mortgage that the children can pay, they can retain the asset. But there is another cost as you age. and I ran into an example of that this weekend when we've had a lot of rain in Oklahoma and my storm cellar turned into a hot tub. And suddenly I had water and I had to go and I had to buy a sump pump and I sumped it out and then I had to go rent a floor pump because there was still six inches of water on the ground. As you age, you can't do stuff like that yourself. And you probably can't mow the lawn and you may not be able to clean the house and you can't do the odd jobs because my husband and I were talking about how expensive it would have been to have hired somebody to come in and then they're going to get some good idea of, oh, we need to blast the thing out and put in a new one. You know, I think I actually just need to caulk a crack. When you can't do it yourself, you pay other people to do it. That's the cost. I don't see it in financial planning literature even very often. It's all of those things that you are doing now that you're going to have to still have done, but you may not be able to be the one to do it. So I want you to be really careful as you project your retirement spending that you don't underestimate it. Because if you underestimate it, that will impact how much you save, and you might not have enough money in retirement. I'd really rather you overestimate your costs and be pleasantly surprised than underestimate them and suddenly have a really big crisis. So be careful with it and be careful to add everything together and don't just use a rule of thumb because I think it's really risky. So in today's show, we talked about being careful of the market and realize that markets go up, but they also go down. So don't lose track of your risk tolerance. Be very careful you understand a relationship you have with any financial professional Take some time in open enrollment to look at your fringe benefits, make sure that you're enrolled in what you need to be enrolled in, and allocate sufficient resources for retirement so you don't run out of money. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today's question actually comes from a survey that I saw put out by YouGov. And YouGov conducts surveys on all kinds of topics. They asked 1,135 Americans how confident they were in what financial terms meant. And so I thought perhaps, um, as it turns out, people aren't very confident, I thought it might be fun in this section of the show from time to time to offer some definitions of the words that people weren't sure they knew what they meant. And today's word is liquidity. And about 65% of the people surveyed thought they knew what the word meant, but 35% did not. And liquidity is an unbelievably important concept when you're trying to create an emergency fund. Liquidity in personal finance defines as the ease of turning an asset into cash with no loss of principal or unbelievably little loss of principal. So a liquid asset can be converted to cash And you have as much cash at the end of it as the asset was worth when you owned the asset. So obviously, the most liquid asset that we own is cash because you have it and it's there and it's worth what you would expect. Money market accounts are just almost as good as cash. And some money market accounts even have FDIC insurance, which really makes them safe. Stocks and bonds, on the other hand, might be worth more or less on the day they're sold depending upon what the market is doing. Collectibles are worse than that because they're worth whatever the market feels like paying, and if you bought a collectible when it was more desired than it is today, it may not be worth nearly as much as you think. Your home is difficult to sell. Remember, the other part of liquidity is how easy is it to do this. So although your home is certainly an asset, it's not a liquid asset. Now, this is important to personal finance because your emergency fund needs to be liquid. It needs to be convertible to cash without loss of principal which means that generally your emergency fund should not be invested in the stock market because when it's invested, it can lose value. So the idea of what you put in your emergency fund is generally cash in the bank. It's not terribly interesting. It's not a lot of fun. It still, however, meets the need. It's liquid. It converts to cash. It's really important to have this. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak. And the last questions that I have for you may also involve you looking up this radio show on a podcast. I'm available on CastBox. I'm available on iTunes. It's Ask Peggy Doviak about your finances for the podcast. Because I want to talk to you today about how to read your financial statement. I had a question this last week, someone, um, I had a call, it's like, I don't know how to read my statement, and it is incredibly confusing. So what I want to give you today, and it'd probably be easier if the statement was in front of you, so if you can get it real quickly, pulled up on your computer, do that, and otherwise, you might want to listen to the podcast again to, to go through it when you're actually looking at it. So your financial statement is your official record of what's going on in your brokerage account, your IRA, your um, taxable account, your transfer on death account, and actually also your 401k plans at work. But I'm I'm not talking about those because some of those statements, they come once a year. I'm talking more about IRA statements, taxable statements, but the principles should work the same either way. It's not as easy when there isn't a printed out statement. So the first thing I want you to do is look at the date of the statement at the top of the page. So you know what period of time you're looking at. It could be a quarterly statement, it could be a monthly statement, it could be an annual statement. But it's really important that you know what period of time you're looking at. Now on the first page of your statement there is probably both the return for the period of time of the the statement, as well as a year-to-date return. So you can look year-to-date to to see how your account is done. You can look to see how it's done for the last period of time. You should probably be more worried about the year-to-date numbers, especially if you're looking at a monthly statement, because there's a lot of variation month-to-month, but still, it's really important to see how it's doing. Then the next major section should show you what holdings you have. There should be a description of what you own. There should be how many shares of it you own and how much it's worth today. Hopefully in this section you also have the ticker symbol for what you own. So you can look up that ticker symbol and do third-party research to make sure that you really understand what's going on. If it doesn't have a ticker symbol on the statement, call your financial advisor and ask what the ticker symbol is. If it's in like an annuity subaccount and there isn't a ticker symbol, then ask for a descriptive sheet of the holding that your um, insurance agent could send to you so that you can understand it. Then there'll be the page that shows the gain-loss for each of the holdings, and that will probably be for the period of time from when you bought it until the date of the statement. You'll see where you earned dividends and interest. So you have the income that's being kicked off of your um, investments in addition to how much they've gone up in value. So for instance, with a bond fund, you're looking at the interest that it's paying and then on the actual gain or loss of the bond fund, it's probably a much smaller number. So most of the time with the bonds, you're looking at the interest side of it, but it's still important to know what it's doing from a gain-loss perspective. Now, here's the page that messes everybody up. When you buy something and you own the investment, and so it's in your holding, and then you have the cash that you didn't spend, right? Except it's not cash, it's actually money market. The brokerage firms aren't allowed, no, no investment firm is allowed to hold cash in a client account. It always goes in as money market. So if you put cash in, you'll see that number then show as a negative number with a positive number associated with buying the money market funds. It's double entry bookkeeping. Don't let it mess you up. When you sell a position, it'll go to cash, then you see the cash go out and you see the money market come in. So it's a conversion. Anytime cash comes into your account, it's always converted to money market so that you're holding money market, typically by the next day, so that there's never a lot of cash in your account for a long period of time. That long list of transactions can get terribly confusing. Basically, you're making sure that everything matches up. That's the part that people don't understand. What you're probably the most interested in is the balance on the first page because how the cash and the money market are moving isn't really impacting the balance of your account, but people see the movement and they think it is. So keep more up with the balance and the gain-loss and the dividends and the interest, and then you can spot-check the cash flow movement, but don't let it get you overly confused. So again, I can't believe how fast the show has gone. So remember to um, don't panic a whole lot week to week on the market returns. Remember that it's important to work with a fiduciary. Understand what Medicare covers. Really spend some time understanding this and read your statements. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And remember, if you've got a question, that you can go to peggydoviak.com and you'll see a box to submit your question right there on the home screen. And then I can try to provide you with an answer on the air. So today's question is a question that I actually get very often, which is, Peggy, if I want to make a trade in my IRA... Are there going to be any tax consequences? And the answer is no. You probably only have two kinds of investment accounts. You have an IRA, you have a 401k, and then you might have a taxable account. The taxable account could be an individual account. It could be a trust account. It could be a transfer on death account. But basically, it's non-retirement money. If you place a trade in a non retirement money account, then yes, you will trigger capital gains if you sell something. So let's say you own an individual account and you buy stock ABC at $10 a share and later you sell it at $20. That would be awesome. That $10 of gain is taxed at the capital gains rate in an individual account. And that happens the year you place the trade. If you get any dividends or interest in that individual account, that's also taxed at the capital gains rate in the year you receive it. Now, if you have money in an IRA or a 401k, and the IRA is a traditional IRA or a Roth or um, a non-deductible IRA, so any kind of IRA, When you put the money in a traditional IRA, you put it in in pre-tax dollars. If you make a trade inside the account, absolutely nothing happens to your taxes. If you get dividends or interest, absolutely nothing happens to your taxes. If, however, you take a distribution out of that IRA and it was funded in pre-tax dollars, then that distribution is taxed at your ordinary income tax rate, not the capital gains rate, but it's taxed at the ordinary income tax rate, and it's every dollar you take out because you put the money in in pre-tax dollars. So you would get that from a 401k distribution. You would get that from a traditional deductible IRA. Non-deductible IRAs, you didn't get the deduction for the contribution. So when, the, when you take the distribution, only the growth is taxed at ordinary income tax. It's not a capital gain. It's ordinary income tax. And with a Roth, if you follow all the rules, the distributions are income tax-free. But simply trading inside your 401k or your IRA or your Roth is not going to create a taxable event. And any income that you receive in through dividends or interest is not going to create a taxable event. This is why some people put their higher dividend paying or interest bearing items inside the IRA so they don't have to deal with that capital gains tax every year, but that's a conversation for you and your financial advisor. So if you need to sell something in your IRA, don't panic. You're not going to trigger tax. If you need to sell something in your tri- in your just individual taxable account, never let your tax tail wag the dog. You're better off to pay some capital gains than make bad investment decisions simply because you don't want to pay the tax on it. And so you don't make the trade that you should make. So that's all for this week's show. I can't believe how fast it went. Here's hoping the market's better this week. I'll see you next week. Bye. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at Peggydoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.